Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Southern Gothic is a podcast that explores the history behind some of the American South's darkest days, greatest mysteries, and most chilling ghost stories. railroad has a distinct place in American folklore. In the early days of steam engines, when rail lines began connecting distant cities across the country, the train became a symbol of progress and modernity. It was not only a new and exciting way to travel, but it also opened possibilities never before seen, playing a major role in both the settlement of the West and American industrialization in a post-war nation. For this reason, railroading quickly grew in cultural significance, not only through stories and legends, but also as a popular subject of folk songs near the turn of the century. These tunes often celebrated the bravery and skill of rail workers and romanticized both the excitement and the danger of rail travel. Some of the most famous train songs over the years include The Wreck of the Old 97, The Midnight Special, and John Henry, which we've covered here on Southern Gothic in the past. But out of all of these old folk ballads that have impacted generations of musicians, from Johnny Cash to Creedence Clearwater Revival, to Bruce Springsteen and The Grateful Dead, one song stands out head and shoulders above the rest, The Ballad of Casey Jones. this iconic song is more than just an entertaining tune, as it was written to celebrate the actions of a real-life engineer, a man who was faced with a difficult decision to either save his own life or the lives of his passengers, a choice that he heroically made without flinching, unaware of the legacy that he gained for the sacrifice.
My name is Brandon Schecksneider, and you are listening to Southern Gothic. The railroader Casey Jones has become one of the most iconic figures in American folklore, sitting right up there with the likes of Paul Bunyan and Johnny Appleseed. Over the past century, the engineer's name has appeared in everything from TV shows and cartoons to numerous songs and even ghost stories, all because of his heroic actions in the early morning hours of April 30th, 1900 when Jones sacrificed his life in an attempt to save others by desperately trying to slow down his train as it plummeted into another. Yet as much as this man has become a myth, unlike Paul Bunyan, Casey Jones was in fact a real historic figure. The man who we now know as Casey Jones was born John Luther Jones on March 14, 1863, to Frank and Ann Nolan Jones in rural southeastern Missouri, a place that folks say was so remote it'd be impossible to even locate today. Due to this and the lack of opportunities that resulted from it, when he was 10, Jones's parents decided to relocate to Kentucky. So they packed their belongings into a mule cart and headed east across the Mississippi River. But at the time, Frank and Ann had no way of knowing just how much this trip would impact their son, because it was on this journey that the young man saw a train steaming down the railroad tracks for the very first time, a sight that immediately captivated him, changing the trajectory of his life forever. The family eventually settled down in the small town of Casey, Kentucky, and by 15, Jones began working in the railroad business. It was there that folks started referring to him by his hometown, and the name has stuck to this very day. Jones was first employed by the Mobile and Ohio Railroad, and while what his job actually was at that time is unclear, he did it well enough to get promoted to the position of brakeman on trains traveling the rails between Columbus, Kentucky and Jackson, Mississippi. During those trips, the brakeman rode in the train's caboose and was responsible for quickly applying the brakes when the engineer wanted to stop the train. This was a historically dangerous position on a rail crew as there have been many reports of brakemen falling off of moving trains or even being crushed by moving cargo inside the train cars. But Casey Jones loved what he did. And after proving his value as a brakeman, he was then promoted to the role of fireman on the Jackson, Tennessee to Mobile, Alabama route. The fireman, which is also known as a stoker or water tender, was an incredibly important job as he was responsible for keeping the fire necessary for the operation of the steam boiler. Not only was this a stressful job though, 
but it was also a very physically demanding one. As the firemen repetitively shoveled coal into a boiler's firebox in order to maintain just the right amount of pressure that was necessary for steam to power the locomotive. This particular route was very important to Casey though, as its northern terminus was Jackson, Tennessee, where his family lived. And by all accounts, Casey Jones was a devoted family man. He had married his love, Janie Brady, just two years before he started working for the Illinois Central Line, a job that allowed them to purchase a house in town where they'd raised their three children. Then in the summer of 1887, Casey Jones had the opportunity to get promoted through the ranks of the Illinois Central Railroad even faster than normal. When yellow fever struck, causing staffing shortages throughout the company's main train crews. So, on March 1st, 1888, he took a job as a fireman on a freight locomotive that traveled between Jackson, Tennessee and Water Valley, Mississippi. Within a year, he was promoted, and on February 23rd, 1891, Casey Jones became a full-fledged engineer for the Illinois Central Railroad. This was the pinnacle of the railroading profession. The role of engineer not only required talent, but also skill, and Casey Jones earned a reputation among his peers as one of the best engineers in the business. He was known particularly for his insistence and ability to get his train to its destination at the advertised time. You see, Casey refused to fall behind schedule. In fact, some say that the young engineer's reputation for timeliness was so widely known that people could set a watch by the punctuality of Casey Jones's train. This wasn't the only thing that folks knew Casey by, though. He was also known for his unique train whistle, which let folks know that his engine wasn't too far away and the tracks best be cleared. While every engineer had their own whistle, the one Casey operated was truly a one-of-a-kind. Made of six thin tubes bound together, with the shortest being half of the length of the longest. And when Jones blew this whistle, he began with a long, drawn-out note that started softly before rising in volume and ultimately fading away into a whisper. This trademark call of the engineer was described by some as a quote, sort of whippoorwill call, and by others, as like the war cry of a Viking. It's said that at night, when the people who lived along his route heard the whistle, they'd turn in their beds and say, there goes Casey Jones. Jones's first few years as an engineer was spent running freight trains. But in 1893, he set his sights on the more prestigious passenger trains. In 1893, the World's Columbian Exposition was held in Chicago, Illinois, and the Illinois Central Railroad was charged with providing commuter service for the thousands of visitors traveling to the fairgrounds. A call was sent out for trainmen who wanted the opportunity to work there, and Jones responded. So he and his wife spent the summer in Chicago as he shuttled fairgoers between Van Buren Street and Jackson Park. 
This was his first time operating a passenger service, and he truly liked it. In addition to ferrying passengers, though, Casey Jones also became acquainted with a new freight engine that was there at the exposition, number 638. This engine was the most technologically advanced of the day, and obviously Jones became enamored with it. So when the fair concluded and the number 638 was to be sent to Water Valley for service, Jones asked to be the one to do it, and his request was granted. He then operated the number 638 engine until February of 1900, when he was transferred from Jackson to Memphis, Tennessee for his most prestigious job yet. Casey Jones had earned an excellent reputation. Most of his career was with freight engines. So when it came to seniority on the rails, this meant he was always just a little lower than his counterparts who operated passenger lines. On top of that, those passenger runs also meant shorter work days, offered better pay, and at stations, it was the freight trains that were regularly shuffled in and out of siding tracks to make way for passenger trains to get ahead of them. Fortunately, that February of 1900, after 10 successful years proving his worth as a freight engineer, Jones was offered the opportunity to take a, quote, high-wheel job operating one of Illinois Central's passenger trains on the run between Memphis and Canton, Mississippi. Jones's new route was one link of a four-train chain between Chicago and New Orleans one of the so-called cannonball passenger runs, a term that folks used for the fast trains of the day and speedy service. On top of that, this particular run was known to be one of the tightest, fastest schedules in the history of American railroading. And notoriously, several veteran engineers quit because they felt the times could not be safely met. According to the passenger time card schedule, the train only had about five hours to make it from Memphis's Poplar Street station to the Canton station and about the same to return. But compared to his days as a freight engineer, the seven or eight cars carrying 300 passengers was considered a light day's work for Casey Jones, who, as I said, was known for being a stickler for punctuality. So he wasn't concerned. This was a challenge that had proven himself capable of undertaking. Unfortunately, in retrospect, this run was more dangerous than Casey had ever imagined. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's peanut butter cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. 
Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. There was a slight rainfall on the night of April 29th, 1900, and Casey Jones was scheduled to take a passenger train south to Canton, Mississippi. He was supposed to leave the station by 11.35 p.m., but due to the late arrival of the previous service, Casey fell behind by over an hour and wasn't able to depart until 12.50 a.m. Of course, being the man that he was, the confident engineer was determined to make up the time after all, he had a fast engine in number 382, a light train, and a skilled fireman named Sim Webb by his side. On the first 100-mile section of the run from Memphis, Tennessee to Granada, Mississippi, the train roared up to 80 miles an hour, and by the time they arrived at their stop in Granada, 55 minutes of their 75-minute delay had been made up. Then, on their next stretch, which was 25 miles to Winona, Mississippi, they made up yet another 15 minutes. So by the time Jones arrived in Durant, they were just about back on schedule. Sim Webb later recounted that fateful night. This put Casey in good humor, and he talked and joked with me all along. Sim, he said, if you keep the old girl hot, we'll go into Canton on time. And I said, well, I'll keep her hot. But naturally, I did. But then, while in Durant, the engineer received a new order that he was to take the siding track at the Goodman station and allow the number two passenger train to pass before he continued on down to Vaughan, Mississippi. He was told that then, at Vaughn, he'd meet the local passenger train number 26, which would be split into two sections and moved over to the siding track so he could take priority over the main one. So after letting the number two pass at the Goodman station, Casey Jones was five minutes behind schedule with 25 minutes of fast track ahead of him, and he had no intention of being late to Vaughn. Unfortunately, on the dark and rainy night, Casey Jones' determination to succeed may have got the best of him. As the train roared furiously down the tracks approaching Vaughn, Mississippi, Casey had absolutely no idea that there were trains occupying the station ahead of him, one of which was broken down directly on his line. The number 83 was a double-header freight that had been delayed, and the number 72 was a long freight train. Both trains were pulled onto the east siding track to allow others to pass, 
but the combined length of these two trains was 10 cars longer than the passing track, leaving cars sitting on the main line. In addition, the second section of the number 26 passenger train had arrived and required a saw-by maneuver in order to get to the house track west of the main line, forcing the number 83 to back up onto the main line so that the number 72 train could pull forward and get its cars off the main track, thus giving number 26 access to the house track. The number 26 was able to do so, but the rear cars of the number 83 were still on the main line. Now, as confusing as that all might be, the result was the same. There were cars directly in the path of Casey Jones's train. Knowing that he was quickly approaching, workers attempted another maneuver to get the extra cars off the track, but an air hose broke on the number 72 train, locking its brakes and stranding the last four cars of the number 83 on the line. And Casey Jones knew none of this as he headed toward Vaughn. To make matters worse, part of the final approach included a one and a half mile left-hand curve that blocked the engineer's view of the station from the engine's right side. So it was fireman Sim Webb who first saw the red lights of the caboose that was stranded on the main line in front of them. When Webb told Jones, the brave engineer immediately ordered Webb to jump from the engine and save himself. And the fireman did just that, exiting the train a mere 300 feet before the impending crash knocking the fireman unconscious. Meanwhile, the veteran engineer instinctively reversed throttle and slammed the air brakes into an emergency stop. But as the brakes squealed under pressure, he was only able to reduce the speed of the fast-moving train by a mere 40 miles per hour. And within seconds, the engine plowed headfirst into the loaded train cars before derailing. Casey Jones was the only fatality that night. He was struck in the throat by either a bolt or a piece of splintered lumber. And when his body was pulled from the engine, Jones's watch was found to have stopped at the time of impact, 3.52 a.m. The engineer was on time. But while Casey Jones might not have survived that horrific accident, it's believed that his quick actions prevented any other serious injuries or death on that fateful day. And according to Webb, after he came to 30 minutes later, the last thing he heard as he jumped from the engine was Jones's long piercing whistle, warning those ahead of him on the track. The next morning, Casey Jones's body was transported back to Jackson, Tennessee by the number 26 passenger train, and his funeral service was held on May 2, 1900 at St. Mary's Church, where he'd been married 14 years earlier. 
15 enginemen rode the rail 118 miles from Water Valley to Jackson to pay their last respects to Casey Jones. He was then interred in Mount Cavalry Cemetery. To this day, there remains many questions and much disagreement about the events that led up to that horrific crash. Questions as to who was to blame and why safety precautions failed. Some believe that exhaustion was a factor, as Casey and Sim had run a route earlier that day due to a sick engineer. But while author Freeman H. Hubbard contends in his book, Railroad Avenue, the earlier train had arrived in Memphis at 6.25 in the morning of April 29th, giving the pair adequate time to be rested for their regularly assigned run later that night. Yet a separate account provided in the biography, Casey Jones by Fred L. Lee, claims that the earlier train arrived in Memphis at 9 p.m. on the evening of April 29th, and thus the men were forced to do a quick turnaround right back to Canton with almost no rest. On the other hand, some have blamed Casey's overconfidence as the cause of the accident, stating that he never should have been traveling at the unsafe speeds he was moving that night. In an accident report put out by Illinois Central, they claimed warning torpedoes were placed on the tracks, flares that would go off when a train passed, and that flagmen were in fact out there providing signals to warn Jones of the danger. Yet Jones either ignored these warnings or missed them entirely. The official account stated, Reports received to date indicate that engineer Jones of the passenger train, who lost his life in the accident, was alone responsible for the accident. His train number 83, which was obstructing the main track at Vaughan, sawing by train number 26, was properly protected by flagmen, who had gone back a distance of 3,000 feet, where he had placed torpedoes on the rail, continued north a further distance of 500 to 800 feet, where he stood and gave signals to the train. The signals, however, were apparently not observed by Engineer Jones, nor is it believed he heard the explosion of the torpedoes as his train continued toward the station at a high rate of speed. It is also stated that Engineer Jones failed to sound the whistle for the station when passing the whistle board. It shouldn't surprise anyone that both of the previously mentioned historians have quite a few questions regarding the official findings of this report. After all, Sim Webb himself gave some awful detailed accountings of what happened that night. And he claimed that due to the limited view from the engineer's side, it would have been impossible for Jones to have seen the flagman if he had been positioned where the report indicated he was. But more importantly, Webb maintained that Casey Jones was a hero all the way up until his death in 1957. We saw no flagman or fuses. We heard no torpedoes. Without any warning, we plowed into that caboose. As a result, historians have continued to dispute the official account of the wreck over the years, based not only on Sim Webb's account, but also the absurdity in believing that an engineer of Jones's experience would have blatantly ignored flagmen and torpedoes. Yet in spite of all of this controversy, the events of that night have cemented Casey Jones in history as a folk hero.
It didn't take long for the media to pick up the story of the crash, and Jones was immediately painted as a heroic engineer who died without ever flinching or letting go of that engine's brakes. The headline of the Memphis paper, The Commercial Appeal, boldly stated, Dead Under His Cab, The Sad End of Engineer Casey Jones. Another article published in the New Orleans Times-Democrat claimed, quote, Heroic engineer sticks to his post at cost of life. Terrible fatality prevented by engineer's loyalty to duty. A passenger story. This article described the events of the night from the perspective of Adam Hauser, a former member of the paper's telegraph staff, who was in a sleeper car on the train at the time of the tragedy. Hauser indicated that the passengers didn't suffer one bit, and surprisingly, there was no panic on the train, though he was jarred, quote, a little, when the train was stopped. He then goes on to extol the courage of Casey Jones. The marvel and mystery is how Engineer Jones stopped that train. The railroad men themselves wondered at it, and of course the uninitiated could not do less, but stop it he did. In a way, that showed his complete mastery of his engine, as well as his sublime heroism. This was the beginning of the myth of Casey Jones. Janice Warren, the one-time park manager of the Casey Jones Museum in Vaughan, Mississippi, which unfortunately is no longer in operation, said it doesn't take much to understand why his heroic actions have been greeted with such a legendary status. It was the song. Good public relations was all it was. There were more than 100 wrecks the same year, a lot of them worse than Casey's. You don't know anything about them. That's right. Not long after that fateful night, an engine shop worker and friend of Casey Jones named Wallace Saunders wrote a ballad celebrating his colleagues' heroic actions. Then, in almost no time at all, the ballad of Casey Jones spread like wildfire up and down the tracks, eventually making its way into the act of traveling vaudeville performers who exposed it to even larger audiences. As a result, there are now over 200 different versions of that song, which some folks say Saunders sold the rights to for nothing more than a bottle of whiskey. Honestly, that would be a tragedy in its own right, as variations of his work have been recorded by a number of different artists, including legends like Pete Seeger, Bing Crosby, and Johnny Cash, not to mention the derivative tune made famous by the Grateful Dead. But while Wallace Saunders might not have gotten royalties for his song, he was certainly successful beyond his wildest dreams in memorializing his friend, as to this day, Casey Jones is an icon What actually happened on the rails near Vaughan, Mississippi will continue to be a mystery. However, one thing is certain, Casey Jones is indeed a hero, as that rainy night, 
he was faced with a decision to save his own life by jumping from the engine or remaining at his post to try and mitigate the disaster. Jones chose the latter, and for that, there is no way of knowing how many lives he spared. My name is Brandon Schecksneider, and you are listening to Southern Gothic. Southern Gothic is an independent podcast produced by siblings Brianne and Brandon Schecksneider. If you're a fan of the show and would like more content, be sure to join us over on Patreon or become a premium subscriber on the Apple Podcast app. There, you'll receive access to both ad-free and monthly bonus episodes. For more info on Southern Gothic, be sure to visit southerngothicmedia.com today. And as always, thanks for listening. Lucky Little Shacks. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. What's something you learned in history class that you feel like wasn't the whole truth? Better yet, what's something you didn't learn at all that was omitted completely? That's what I like to call redacted history. My name is Andre White, the host of the Redacted History Podcast, the place where history's forgotten events, heroes, and villains get their story told, one episode at a time. The Redacted History Podcast. Real history never dies. Stream the Redacted History Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts.